Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 19 is where we'll be reading this morning. Beginning of verse 16, Paul writes, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to gather with your people. Thank you for the body of Christ, which you have made us a part and we thank you for the grace that is given to us through our Lord, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through this redemption that you've provided for us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege it is to gather. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, for your favor towards us in Jesus Christ. And I do pray, as we have met this day, that hearts and minds will be turned to Christ, Lord, not just for these few moments, but especially for these moments. May we be intent and purposeful in turning our attention to you, for you alone are worthy of such uh, attention from us as your created beings and as the people whom you've redeemed. And we pray that we might give you all the glory and all the honor, which is due unto your name, Lord, for we know that there's nothing we deserve of your goodness or grace, but Lord, that's what makes it what it is, grace. And so we are grateful for that. And we pray today as we've gathered that every heart, every mind, Lord, would be open to the truth of your word and receptive of such truth. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive by the working of your spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for just your many blessings, Lord, and specifically that which you've given us in Christ. May we not take that for granted. May we not neglect to live in the truth of this victory and of this joy that is in our Savior. And may we be mindful of these things, Lord, throughout this day and the days to come. We pray this to your glory and to your honor that your name be exalted, for it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Last week, if you were with us, uh, you'll recall, hopefully, that our study was focused on verses 11 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2. And in verse 12, Paul declared, Ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. And the noun operation in this text means working. And last week, we also examined... Paul's answer to the question resulting from Paul's statement in verse 10, when he said in verse 10, just as we studied weeks prior, and ye are complete in him. So you are made complete in Christ. As you know, verse 9, if you go back one more verse, the scripture declares that for in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And again, that's so important in relation to what is taking place, the truth that Paul is addressing to the church at Colossae with all that is going on. I don't want to belabor the point or, or continue to just repeat this, but I believe it's important for our understanding, again, remi being reminded that Paul wrote this letter to a church in, which, in a day in which Gnosticism was creeping into that church. And so, again, the belief that all, all matter itself is evil, inherently in and of itself is evil, and therefore Jesus could have not come in the flesh because had he had Jesus been the Son of God in the flesh, then that means that he would have been sinful himself because all matter is evil it's inherently itself. And also that uh, the Gnostics, of course, believed in, in the words derived from the Greek word gnosis, of course, in which it speaks of knowledge. And so the point being 
that they believed that there was some special revelation that God had uh, provided for man's mystical knowledge that man could have uh, to obtain knowledge of God himself through some mystical means. And so all of this, of course, uh, totally uh, destroys the whole purpose and intent and, in, and necessity for God to send Christ in the flesh. He, God manifested his son in the flesh. The word in the beginning was the word, John 1. The word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning, beginning uh, with God. Then verse 14 of John 1, you know, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we understand that God made Christ to come in the flesh, and it was through the flesh that Jesus died, suffering for our sins to the glory of God the Father, uh, that he might redeem us, that we might be justified, that we might be reconciled to him. And so Paul deals with that as well in this passage. But we remember that Christ is the fullness then, verse 9, as I mentioned, of the Godhead bodily. So that's an important term that is used here, again, emphasizing the necessity for Jesus to come in the flesh. And we are complete. We are fulfilled, is what he's saying, in him. And so the obvious question, as we asked last week, which results from Paul's declaration of you are complete in him in verse 10, is simply how have we been made complete in Christ? How are we fulfilled in him? And in verses 11 and 12, Paul helps us to see that we are made complete through the Spirit of Christ. And I told you last week, if you recall, within the new covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer through redemption provided by God in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the true circumcision, which is of the heart and not of the flesh, as Paul addresses here in Colossians chapter 2. Peter declared in Acts 15, 9, that while the Jewish, of course, Abrahamic token of the Abrahamic covenant was that of the fleshly circumcision of the Jewish men, as you're aware, he, he said that while physical circumcision is not necessary for salvation, that spiritual circumcision, which Paul mentions here in Colossians 2.11, is not only something necessary for salvation, but that's not what it is, but it is that spiritual circumcision is performed by the Spirit of God working in man himself, in the heart, in the mind of man, in regenerating man, in, in cutting away the flesh, if you will, the fleshly nature of man and his spirit now abiding in us. And this itself is salvation. So it's not just something necessary for salvation, but it is salvation itself. Acts 15, 8 and 9, we read, And God, Peter states, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, speaking of the Gentiles and the Jews. And he's, verse 9, he says, And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This is that of which Paul speaks in Colossians chapter 2.11. So we also made complete through the forgiveness of Christ, verses 13 and 14 of our text. It is through forgiveness in Jesus that God has blotted out or expunged our sins. The statement blotting out means to wipe out or to cancel. And as I shared last week with you, historically speaking, this would be done, the terminology used here is that which references how in the same manner debts were historically canceled by smearing or wiping out the writing of a, uh, on a wax tablet where it was just completely removed and wiped out and un unable to even be seen anymore. And the Lord, in like manner, has wiped out our death through the cross of our Lord Jesus. He has canceled the debt because Christ has paid the atonement. And in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter makes this statement. He says, who, speaking of Christ, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Again, the body here is important. Speaking of the very flesh, the manifestation of God in the flesh through his Son, he says he bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. 
by whose stripes ye were healed. By the way, as he references here, of course, Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, you've heard many people say, no doubt, in times past, you've probably heard this statement made or argument made, that we are uh, healed by his stripes. And they try to equate that to some physical healing, as though the, the sufferings of Christ on the cross were provided that we might be physically healed. So we should not be sick. We should not know that. And of course, that's foolishness. Here, Peter explains that. He says, we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. He's speaking of a spiritual healing here, of a spiritual problem that existed, being spiritually dead, now spiritually brought to life. And that's what he's referencing. Now, in the end, ultimately, we could say and understand that as we stand before God one day in a glorified body, those who are redeemed, those who are believers in Christ, that we will be literally healed from all sickness and all illness and all deformity and all, uh, all the, the obvious consequences of sin that exists because of original sin in the garden and our own actual sins as well. And so one day that will be true, but that's not what's being referenced here. The reference is that we are healed by the stripes of Christ. Christ bore the Father's wrath on our behalf that we might be redeemed, that we might be reconciled to him. Then we saw third last week, we are made complete through the triumph of Christ. Verse 15, the verb spoiled means to disarm and the statement made a show of them openly, it means disgrace boldly with confidence, disgrace plainly. So our Lord publicly triumphed over sin and over all the powers of evil darkness on our behalf that we might have victory through him. 2 Corinthians 2.14 tells us this. 1 Corinthians 15.55-57 as well explains this truth. So within the remaining verses of this second chapter of Colossians, which we will not have time to deal with all of them, but in the ones which we are looking at this morning... Paul continues in this passage to exhort the believers in the church of Colossae to remain focused on Christ. Remember again, as I mentioned a moment ago, with the error of the teaching and, and, the, and the heresy being brought in of that of Gnosticism where the, the bodily manifestation of the Lord uh, through Christ, through the Son of God, was not necessary or that it was impossible according to their teaching. It is, of course, again, marginalizing the importance of Christ being manifested, or Jesus being manifested in the flesh as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the Messiah. And so we see here that Paul is emphasizing throughout the entirety of the book of Colossians the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that he is Lord, he is preeminent, he is above all, he is before all. And so Paul is making this statement very clear throughout this text. And so he now is encouraging the Colossian believers in the face of this opposition, in the face of Gnosticism, to remain focused, to remain, uh, give their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Paul's exhortation in this portion of the text, to remain focused, is unique compared to that which he's already stated. So he's not just being repetitive, but he's now speaking to them in a different manner concerning the same truth. Unlike the warnings and exhortations that we've already studied in which Paul had previously provided in this letter, within this exhortation, within this portion of the text, Paul gives practical examples of how the Colossian believers were to give heed in not allowing anyone or anything to distract them from the preeminence or the lordship of Jesus and, be, and that they would not be distracted from the freedom that is provided in him. And such freedom found in Christ is the direct result from the operation or working, as we saw in the previous text, previous verses, 
of God and how he has made us complete in Christ, as indicated in verses 13 through 15. Let me, let me stop here before we read this and explain what I just said to you, maybe a little, a little in maybe more simple terms, I guess. The reality is this, that if you do not understand the fullness of Christ, if you do not see the preeminence of Christ, if you, as, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, do not understand and comprehend the truth that God has made you complete in Him, that this is a finished work. Now, progressively, practically, we continue to see the realization of this positional working of God in our lives. But if we fail to understand what Paul has said, and ye are complete in Him, and Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and now we have fulfillment in Him, are made fulfilled and complete in Him, then this is inevitably what will ensue. You will always be looking for a way to attempt to complete a work that is already completed. And you will find yourself entrapped and ensnared into religion, into ministry, into some actions or acts or some performance or some facade in which you are attempting to appease God the Father who is already pleased and satisfied in the work of his Son. And so what Paul is saying here is that this freedom that is found in Christ is not liberty to sin, of course, and we'll deal with that a little bit more in a moment. But he is saying, do not lose or turn your attention or focus away from the preeminent Christ in whom God has made you complete. Rest and trust and live in the fulfillment of Christ who is the personification of the righteousness of God, rather than attempting and being drawn aside and distracted and therefore attempting to appease a satisfied God. Why would you do such? In other words, this isn't about legalism, religion, about you fulfilling some duty that you feel like necessary to do. It's about living in the truth of Christ and allowing, therefore, His Spirit to work and live in you. And we'll see how Paul breaks that down further. So in verses 13 through 15 of our text, we read, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So let me ask you something. Just stop here for just a moment. And I do not want to get bogged down here because we need to move forward. But I do want to ask this question. How many of your sins are not forgiven? None. What about sins... I haven't even yet confessed. None. Are you falling? So why are we attempting to appease God who's already satisfied His Son? Now, we confess our sins that our fellowship is restored to the Father, but we do not confess sins seeking to find some forgiveness in how deeply we are repentant or, or sorrowing over our sins, though we should be. We only are forgiven on the basis of Christ, not on ourselves. And so we see here, he's forgiven all trespasses. How? By being dead. We were dead in sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, but he hath quickened together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, he explains it further, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Here he's saying he publicly, openly paid the ransom for the debt that we owed, wiping out, canceling the debt completely. Now, let me remind you of something. 
At that moment, when this literally took place, not any one of us here today had committed any sin. We weren't even in existence. And yet it was all taken care of by Christ on that day. All future sins. Having spoiled principalities and powers. Again, that word spoiled is a disgrace, an open disgrace. He openly disgraced. He openly put to shame all principalities, all powers, all the wickedness, all of Satan's forces, everything that stood against us, mankind that is, and those who are redeemed in Christ, God literally wiped it all out that day, nailing it to his cross openly, publicly. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And again, I'll remind you, Jesus didn't gain victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave for himself. He was manifested in the flesh to gain that victory for us who are bound under the bondage of sinful flesh. Had he not already been victorious, had he not already been the victor, he could have never gained the victory for us. And so it's important we recognize that. It's through God's forgiveness, through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, that we are restored to a relationship with God the Father and have been provided freedom from sin, but not only freedom from sin. Hear me, please, and you should rejoice in this truth. When I taught through Galatians years back now, when we went through our study of Galatians, if you recall, I said to you then, and I don't know how many of you really picked up on this or not, in our study of Galatians, I said to you, this book should be one of the most joyous studies that we have ever gone through as believers in Jesus Christ because we are being reminded that we are free from religious bondage and are made free in Jesus Christ. There is liberty in Christ, and he is all-sufficient, which is the theme of the book, of course, the sufficiency or all-sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that Paul explains that we are free not only from sin itself, but we are free from religious bondage, and we are free from the control of our own sinful nature. Remember Romans chapter 1, it's very clear. God says that Paul makes it very clear through Paul, or God makes it clear through Paul's writing in Romans 1, that man will self-destruct if left to himself. If God does not divinely intervene and interrupt our lives through his providential working by his spirit, drawing us to himself, we would self-destruct. So God not only saves us from sin, he saves us from the condemnation, the penalty of sin, he saves us from the bondage of sin, he saves us from the, from the, um, the bondage of our own sinful, self-destructive nature. He saves us from, delivers us from all that would destroy us otherwise in the person of Christ. Now, everything Paul states in the following verses of this chapter is based on the truth of God's work of making us complete or making us fulfilled in Christ in which God has provided us freedom. Paul uses the admonition, let no man. We've read it this morning twice in the remaining verses of this chapter, twice in our text, 16 through 19. In verse 16, he said, let no man therefore judge you. Then he says, let no man beguile you. Paul's exhortation in this passage of the text is important due to its significance in reminding the Colossian believers to not allow others to put them into bondage when Christ has made them free. Hear me this morning. You, you should rejoice in this truth. And I'm not trying to stir an emotion out of you. You know that. But you genuinely, literally should be rejoicing as believers in Christ in this truth while many today will stand behind pulpits, if you will, and, and put hundreds, if not thousands, and more of people 
under more religious bondage. I'm telling you, Christ has made you free from religious bondage. And do not allow any man to put you under religious bondage when Christ is the freedom from that. So we see, first of all, Paul says in verses 16 and 17, Do not allow or let no man deny you of your liberty in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 16 and verse 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, while Paul had previously warned of those who would attempt to distract the church through false doctrine, he now warns the church of those who would attempt to distract them from the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus by entrapping them in religious bondage. Hear me closely, please. You need to be aware of this. When the church rejects the false teaching and the heresies that is just bombarding it, the enemy will then attempt to place the church in bondage to religious traditions. While you say, oh, I, we know the heresies, we understand the false teaching, we understand the blasphemies, and we will not take part in that. But let me tell you what will then happen if you're not careful. You will still look away from the sufficiency and preeminence of Jesus and become ensnared and entrapped into some religious responsibility, some religious duty, some religious action that is therefore marginalizing the freedom and liberty that exists in Christ. Jesus spoke of this in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 15, 7 through 9, and most of you are familiar with this passage. Jesus says, ye hypocrites, speaking to the religious leaders of his day, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, or Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips. But what does he say then? But their heart is far from me. But then he makes a statement. But in vain they do worship me. So we're taught people who give God praise and give God lip service and talk about how great God is and how wonderful and how blessed they are. And they go and worship God by their own definition because he's saying not genuine worship. Because genuine worship, of course, is submission to the Lord, submission to God, which is never in vain. But he's saying this empty form of worship, if you will. And then he makes a statement. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You understand what Jesus just said? You are putting people, you as religious leaders of your day, which were hearts were far from God. They were not servants of the Lord. They did not love the Lord. They may have declared to love the Lord, but they hated Christ. <laughs> and he says, your hearts are far from God, far from me. And you now are imposing upon the people religious bondage, the teachings and traditions of men as though they are the teaching of God. So you're putting your own teaching up there, your own standards, your own quote-unquote convictions, your own beliefs. You're equating all of those things to the commandments of God, to the teaching of God. By the way, there were some 600-plus commandments that the Pharisees added to God's law. And they held the people to those when Jesus himself said to them, you put upon these people a yoke that you yourself cannot bear. You, you put a burden upon them that you can't keep. You're telling them, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. And you're binding them. And you yourself are hypocrites and not 
following after the same things you command of them. Throughout the New Testament, there are multiple passages of Scripture, including Paul's epistles to the churches, which address the continued attacks against the freedom in Christ. And I, I invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to read some lengthy passages here together, so I'd welcome you to open the Word of God with me and read with me. But Galatians chapter 1, again, a great passage concerning the all-sufficiency of our Lord. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, we read. Paul says, I marvel. He's saying, I, 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 he's basically saying, I'm in disbelief. I am astounded, is what he's saying, that ye are so soon removed from him. Again, Paul doesn't say you're so soon removed from the gospel. He says, you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So he says, wait a minute, it's not a complete other teaching against the gospel of Jesus in the sense of it's not saying denying the gospel of Christ altogether and presenting some new, different gospel. It is perverting the truth of the gospel, which is still not the gospel, <laughs> which is why Paul says another gospel, which is not another, but a perversion of the gospel. He says in verse 8, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Interesting, isn't it? He speaks of angels here. What does Paul mention in Colossians? The worshiping of angels. Remember, he just mentioned that. And this Gnosticism again, spiritual revelation, mystical revelation, apart from Jesus Christ. He says, no matter who comes to you, including an angel, if an angel were to appear to you and preach a different gospel other than sufficiency and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cursed. Reject it at all costs. He goes on to say, verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach unto any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek, notice what he says, do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The context of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia is again, the Judaizers coming into the churches saying, Oh, yeah, believe Jesus, that's fine, but you must be circumcised under Jewish tradition if you really are going to be saved. This is necessary for salvation. Again, what we read a moment ago in Acts 15 was also at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter arguing against that point. It's all the same, it's the same issue. And it's that the Judaizers are coming in saying, okay, believe, yes, but you have to be circumcised if you're truly saved. This is Jewish tradition, the Abrahamic covenant, the token of the Abrahamic covenant. So this is something that is necessary if you're genuinely to be born again. Now notice what Paul is saying here. In that context, specifically in Galatians, he makes it very clear in the further passages. He says here, do I now persuade men or God? He said, or do I seek to please men? That's what is the issue here. And he says, if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So Paul is saying, if I am seeking to appease man, if I'm seeking to do what man says traditionally should be done, then I'm not truly serving Christ. I'm serving man and his teaching and his traditions, specifically in relation to adding to the sufficiency of Jesus through circumcision. This is what Paul is saying. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul writes, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some should depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 
For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Look, this is another verse that you all should be very thankful for, because here's what that means. We can eat bacon, and it's good. God says it's good, all right? And uh, that's a great statement, isn't it? So here's another wonderful truth. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, he says, if people are trying to say you can't eat meat, and remember, there's this whole other issue we don't have time to get all into this morning, where Paul deals with drink and meat. And he talks about that which is offered unto idols. And just to clarify, he, and, and I'm going to throw this out, and you can do with it what you want. Not really. You need to look at it contextually in light of Scripture. But I'm going to throw it out and then leave it alone because I've got to move on. But Paul calls the brother who will not eat meat the weaker brother, and the brother who does meat eat, eat meat the stronger brother. Just think about that for a moment. In other words, the one who says, I can't do that, that's not right. If Scripture doesn't say anything about it, he's saying that's a weaker brother in the faith compared to the stronger one who understands all things are given by God, and therefore we can eat and drink as we will within the confines or context of Scripture, talking about not falling into sin or becoming sinful in it. But he's saying that that weaker brother says you can't do that. And again, part of the problem with that, if you recall, is that Paul doesn't address eating or not eating. I mean, he mentions it. But he doesn't say, oh, the one who eats is right and the one who doesn't eat isn't, or the one who doesn't eat is right and the one who does eat is, isn't. But rather he says, here's the, here's the dangers. The stronger, the weaker brother is in danger of judging, as Paul mentions even here, the stronger brother saying, well, you can't do that. That's sin. Well, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. When Scripture doesn't say that. And they put, impose their own convictions, their own personal standards upon others in putting them in bondage to not do something that Scripture does not forbid or say could not, should not be done. The other side, though, is this. The stronger brother has a tendency to dismiss the weaker brother and just look at him as some fool or some foolish person who just doesn't understand and not, not consider them as being uh, valuable in the faith as they are, as people God has redeemed. And so there's that danger that is present on both sides of the argument here. And Paul warns against that, not the eating or, de- or not eating, but he warns against the spirit attitude in which it's done or not done. And so he says, you cannot put someone else in bondage to your beliefs when they're not biblical, when Scripture doesn't spell it out, when God has not stated this. And so that's the danger that exists. And so here he says that every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. And concerning that which was offered to idols, again, briefly touching on this without going into the text of that passage, if you recall with me, the issue was that there were those who, if something had been offered to an idol, they claim, oh, I can't eat that. And the reason I can't eat that is because that was offered unto an idol. Therefore, if I eat it, I am participating in that idol worship. But Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. For in doing so, in one sense of the word, you are acknowledging a false god that does not even exist. He said, if you, but yet the other side of it is this. If you, are to, if you take part in or participate in the offering of this unto an idol, then you are sinning because you, again, are acknowledging willfully this idol, this false god that does not even actually exist. He says, however, if a person is to eat something that was offered to an idol and they were not participating in the offering of this to the idol, then they can eat it because this is of God. God gave us this, not an idol. So it's how we approach and acknowledge that which is being done and our spirit in doing so. So Paul is saying here, verse 5, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So if we come to this in thanksgiving and, and acknowledging he who gave it to us, it is being sanctified by God through prayer and thanksgiving to him. Romans 14, 2 through 6. 
For one, here he mentions what I mentioned, referenced a moment ago. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. There it is, despise, to discount, to look at him as though he, he's not valuable or foolish. But rather, um, let him not which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth the day, one day above another. He mentioned that here about a holy day, did he not? Sabbath, remember, in our text, here he mentions it again. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. I happen to fall under that category of every day is just another day sort of type mentality. Some people are much different than that in which they celebrate certain days as if these are heightened days or whatever. I see kind of all the same, right? He says, hey, some people, some people are like that. They see one, one day as though it, it is, is greater than another day, but others see them all alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So again, it's the spirit and attitude in which this is done, but it's not judging one another in it, because Scripture does not speak to this in terms of forbidding or not. So when referring to the tabernacle and sacrifices made by the high priest for the sins of the people, the writer of Hebrews explains this, Hebrews 9, 9 through 12. I told you, have your Bibles out. We're going to be reading some Scripture. Which was a figure of the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service, the worship, perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Here he's saying all of those things in the past were shadows and types of the true, which is Jesus Christ. And they are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. He says none of those things could make he that participated in that form of worship before God perfect. It could not cleanse him. It could not perfect him. It did not do away with his sins. The writer of Hebrews further writes and sums it all, all up by stating this in Hebrews 13.9. He said, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. Isn't that an interesting statement? Which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. He says people that are tied up with this religious liberty are not having it and imposing religious bondage upon others. He says, let the heart be established with grace, not with these traditions that have not benefited anyone who's attempted to live thereby. In our text this morning, Colossians 2.17, Paul also explained that all those things to which people were trusting were only shadows of that which was to come and be fulfilled in Christ, as Hebrew writer says also. Colossians 2.17, he says it here, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The exhortation here is clear then. Do not let any man deny you the joy of the liberty God has provided you in Jesus Christ. In other words, do not allow others to place you in religious bondage to which Christ has set you free. Now, that being said, we understand Paul exhorts even further in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And when he speaks of the bondage here, he's talking about religious bondage, not sin itself, 
but that which we allow to become sinful because we, in, we become in bond, enslaved to it. He says in chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made, you, made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. He's talking about that religious bondage. These teachings and traditions of men. Behold, he says, verse 2, I say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. He's talking again about that, that physical circumcision. He's saying if you are trusting in following the traditions of the Old Testament, that which has now been complete and made fulfilled and perfect in Jesus, and you are attempting to now do something that was only a shadow of the true, and it is fulfilled in Christ. So if you don't see Christ as being preeminent, if you don't see Jesus as being all-sufficient, if you don't see Jesus as God's perfect sacrifice and atonement to which all of the others were simply shadows of pointing us to him, then what you will do is you will become entangled in religious bondage and really mitigating the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. In other words, here's what we're really saying, and I know people don't view it this way, but hear me. What Paul, this is why the warning is, is so strong and the exhortation admonition is given as it is. For you to think that you have to do anything to be made accepted before God apart from resting in Jesus who has made us accepted in the beloved, God the Father making us accepted in Him, then what you are saying is Jesus is not sufficient. He just isn't enough. So I have to compensate and have to make up where Jesus could not perform, where he could not fulfill. Now do you see the danger of this? Here's the heresy. So here's the, here's the real danger of what is taking place. So people are neglecting to live in the truth of the sufficiency of the Savior and begin to trust in what they are doing or allow others to put them in bondage to do things so that we become more acceptable before God. Listen, let me ask you something. Ephesians tells us, does it not, that he, the Father, hath made us accepted in the beloved, in the Son. So what do I have to do to be accepted? What more can I do to become more acceptable? By the way, it doesn't say acceptable, does it? It says accepted. God has made us accepted in Christ. And it, let, me, let me put it to you in other terms. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us, meaning his life is the intercession on our behalf, Right? doesn't mean Jesus is up there begging the Father, please forgive him, Lord, please forgive him, Father. No, his life is our intercession. So as long as the Father accepts the Son, I am accepted in him. And the moment the Father rejects the Son, then none of us have any hope. But guess what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he pleased the Father, Isaiah 53 said, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Remember that? He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. So the Father is satisfied in the Son. Therefore, we have access to God the Father, not because we do have a good day and do well, or not because, well, we really champion today without sin, didn't we? Of course not. We have access to God the Father because of the Son, Jesus Christ, and that's it. So why would we attempt to dis become distracted? Why would we allow any distraction to turn our focus and attention away from he who is our redemption, who is our sanctification, who is sufficient. But yet, here's, here's the sad part about it. Are you ready? Ready to hear this? 
how quickly we are removed from him who has called us unto the grace of Christ. How quickly, how fickle our hearts are to turn from the sufficiency of Christ and begin to say, I need to do, perform, be. I can't do this. i got to start doing this. Or you see someone else, oh, I need, to, I need to live according to their standards, according to what they believe to be right. No, you need to live in submission to the truth of God's Word as the Holy Spirit teaches and guides you within it. Paul says it profits nothing otherwise. And while we are willingly to sacrifice, now also we are willing to, we are to be willing to sacrifice our liberty out of love for others. We are not to trust in following the traditions of men. So Paul makes this clear in Galatians 5.13 as well. For brethren, you have not been, you've been, I'm sorry, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serving one another. And Paul made it clear that he himself, if it offended his brother, literally offended them. If, if he would not do anything intentionally, knowingly to offend a brother in Christ. In other words, he says, I will, basically, to summarize, I will never eat meat again if that's what it takes to not be an offense to a brother. Now, that doesn't mean Paul's saying I'm living according to their beliefs or standards. He's saying, I am not going to allow my liberty I have to be an potential offense to another brother who doesn't understand that liberty. So there's a responsibility in living in the truth of that liberty. But Paul is warning here, do not allow anyone to deny you of the liberty and freedom in Christ. I think we will pause. Because I'm not finished yet, but I think we will pause. And all God's people said, wow, isn't that wonderful? So I think that I will, I think I will, I think I will pause and we will pick up next week, Lord willing, where I'm leaving off this morning, which was not my intent, but we're going to see where Paul goes on to explain in verses 18 and 19 that do not allow or let no man defraud you of your reward in Christ, which directly ties into our liberty in Christ. It really does. Though you may not see that connection when I state it, it literally is connected to that because the liberty that we have in Christ is through submission to him and the only reward that we have in Christ is submission to him so these two things actually tie together they're inseparably linked but yet it may not be quite as obvious as we as it truly is at first glance but they really are because remember this I'll say this and we're going to I'll conclude for this morning at least that um the, the, the liberty or the reward that we are given, let me back up and say to you, you will never be rewarded what you do. You will never be rewarded for something you've sourced. The only reward is ever received is that which God has done through you and in you as you are submitted to him. Now it's him, do, it, yes, you are the means by which God is doing, but, and we're going to get into all of this next week, but the fact of the matter is, we are rewarded by God for what He does through us. But what does the Scripture say? We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It also tells us that, that all, all the works will be tried by fire. To my believers at the judgment seat of Christ, tried by fire. Why is it tried by fire? Because anything that we touch, we pollute and pervert. So God then tries it by fire to consume all the dross, all the parts that we had involved in this. God says, nope, unacceptable, and wipes it all clean through the fire. The only thing left is what God has done. 
And then guess what again, God, and this is the beauty of it. You know what God then allows us to do? He allows us to take the reward which he has given us. And in Revelation 4, it tells us that we cast our crowns at his feet, saying glory and honor unto the only one that deserves glory and honor, recognizing that the only reward that we ever deserve is judgment and wrath. And yet God has rewarded us for what he has done, and now we come to an absolute understanding that it's not we deserve any reward. God deserves the glory and honor for everything that he has done. He's purified that work. We now cast our reward unto him because we recognize he is worthy of such, for it was never us to begin with. It was him. He's the one who did this. What a joy that is. What a God. Think about this for a moment. I'm done. What a God that he would allow us to receive reward for what he has done in us, only to then give him back that reward because he is worthy of such. He would even allow us that privilege. What a, what a joy. What a, what a God. What a Savior. Christ is all sufficient. He is preeminent. Do not allow others to deny you of the liberty you have in Christ, but that does not mean you use liberty as an occasion to the flesh by any means. And anyone who understands the truth of Scripture knows that to be the case. Someone who believes otherwise is simply just perverting the truth of Scripture, attempting to fulfill their own sinful desires. But at the same time, just as it is sinful for you to use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh, it is also just as sinful for you to allow others to put you under religious bondage. It's just as simple. Live in the liberty of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to gather here this day and for the word of God.